6640. 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Prophet and priest. There's a difference between a prophet and a priest. That's the direction of the communication. Who's dialing who, right? A prophet is God's representative to the people, right? He exhorts and presents God. The priest presents the people to God. Here's the way I decided it. I thought this would do it. The, the prophet is God's presentation to the people. The priest presents the person to God. So that's, that's a way to view their roles and missions, if you will. In our case, Christ is both, right? Of course. But, uh, okay, we actually made it to the first verse of, of uh, this chapter 9. I'm, we're we're ahead, of, ahead of the power curve. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men, notice he's from men, he has to be a man, Christ can be our high priest because he's a man, right? Is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who gave us the most ultimate sacrifice? It wasn't Aaron. It was Christ. Who can have compassion for the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself is also, is also compassed with infirmity. In other words, a good priest knows where you're at. So to speak, he, he, he can sympathize. He can understand. And Christ indeed can. Why? Because he's, he not only created you, he's a man himself. And by reason thereof, he ought, as for the people, he also for himself to offer for sins. Now that's referring, of course, to Aaron, because Aaron could offer sins for himself, offerings for sins. Christ didn't need to. He was sinless. He offered himself, actually. And no man taketh his honor unto himself. In other words, you, you don't become a priest because you choose to. You are selected. Now, in the Levitical sense, you had to not only be a Levite, you had to be a son of Aaron, a descendant of Aaron. You didn't volunteer or train, well, you trained, but I mean, you didn't choose a career of being a priest. You either were or were not a priest. You with me? Okay. I mean, you, you didn't take this honor unto yourself. But he that is called of God, as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest, and he was called to that office. He didn't seek it. He probably didn't want it. And... Uh, he certainly didn't merit it, as we'll see. But he was appointed by God. The Aaronic priesthood, not to be confused with the priesthood that we're heading into. He's setting up a straw man here. We're going to talk about the Aaronic priesthood. That's what his readers were used to. And you need to understand the predicament of the, re the reader to this epistle. Picture yourself alive after 32 AD, before 70 AD. That's the window. You're Jewish. You've got divinely appointed people doing divinely appointed rituals in a divinely appointed place over there in the temple. And you're giving that all up. When you get baptized for Christ, you're shedding your Judaism, becoming Christian. Can you imagine how that was? How they were not accepted. They were persecuted. That's what they're chafing under. They're thinking about going back to Judaism. I'll get saved later <laughs> kind of thing. That's not an option. That's basically the theme here. 
Can they lose their salvation? Absolutely not. And it's a, pre it's a prelude to this whole discussion of eternal security that I'm not going to rebadger here except to make one point. And that is that if you, if you can lose your salvation, God loses more than you do because he loses his good name. Because God, Jesus said that no one can take them out of my hand. All that you, Father, all that you give me shall come to me, and whosoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. No one can take them out of my hand. In the next verse, this is John 10, verse 28 and 29. No one can take them out of my Father's hand. There are two hands involved. You can't get out of there if you tried. And I love to use Walter Bar a quote that I attribute to Walter Barton. If you, if you can lose your salvation, i got a new name for God. Butterfingers. And it's, it's an irreverent way of making a point, perhaps. But your security is because of what Christ completed on the cross. He said, to tell us die, it is finished. So let's make sure that that's not a lingering concern. But there is a problem, and that's inheritance. Now, Aaron was singled out by God in Exodus 16. He was officially called to the priesthood, priesthood in Exodus 28. He was reconfirmed in that office in Numbers 17. Then he was challenged. Korah led a rebellion. And God sort of explained it to Korah a little more clearly. <laughs> he opened the earth and swallowed he and his followers up. King Saul attempted to take the role of a priest. And he's a king. He's not supposed to be. The king and the priest were separate. Kings were from Judah. Priests were from Levi. The idea was separate. King Saul got impatient waiting for Nathan to show up. So he, he started to perform his own sacrifice. And that led to God's rejecting him as king. And the, and the anointing of David. 1 Samuel 13. When King Uzziah tried to burn incense, here's again a king intruding on the office of a priest. He got leprosy. God's making a point here. God takes himself very seriously. We need to also. So now shifting back to the text here. In, uh, so Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have I begotten thee. Where does he get that? Where is the writer quoting from here? Psalm 2, right? Jesus, our high priest, is mentioned in Psalm 2. He's, he's appointed high priest by whom? His father. Okay? Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And the psalm goes on. That's a quote from Psalm 2.7. He had been mentioned twice before in this letter, and we may have touched on it then, but now we're getting into it. And he saith unto him in another place, again, now the quote, again, the writer isn't building his case on any personal authority. He's simply quoting from scriptures that are accepted by his readers. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That phrase is a strange phrase. The more you know about it, the stranger it is. So we're going to touch a little bit about the order of Melchizedek in contrast to the order of Aaron. It's a different priesthood altogether. This quote happens to come from Psalm 110, verse 4. And I want, I'm going to get into that tonight a little bit because I think it's a good review. But the Melchizedek priesthood is... Just a couple of verses in Genesis that are then echoed in Psalm 110 and picked up here for three chapters or more. And, and uh, it is the cornerstone of the entire epistle. It, it has few, there are no other parallels to this anywhere in the New Testament, anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's, gonna, it's going to develop an estimate, a comparison between the two covenants the Aaronic Covenant and the, the, the Melchizedek, I should say, the Aaronic Priesthood and Melchizedek Priesthood. And it's also going to do, a, then, that's going to lead to a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant 
the very thing that gives our Bible its names, New and Old Testament, if you will. But we're going to take a look at the two root things here. It's too important. Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 is one of the most interesting, shortest but most interesting psalms in the entire Old Testament. Verse 1 itself is quoted 25 times in the New Testament. And of those times, four of them are in, the, in this epistle. It gets worse than that. Verse 4, the Melchizedek verse, is quoted four times in the New Testament. In fact, the, in the epistle of Hebrews, there are ten quotes or allusions alone. Just in this, in, so it's, it's obviously a key reference to the writer here. Let's take a look at it while we're at it. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That verse Jesus used to put the lawyers to total confusion. I'll show you that in a minute. Jesus used that verse to put the lawyers to total confusion. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies confusion. He was under attack. The Herodians, that's the political party, tried to trap him by forcing him to make a political statement that would mark him as a traitor to Rome, and they failed doing that. Then the Sadducees stepped up. That's the liberals, if you will. They tried to trap him with a ridiculous question regarding the Mosaic Law, and they, they, they failed there. Then the Pharisees, that's they're the, 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 the conservatives, you might call them, tried to trap him, and Jesus' answer puzzled them. So while they're all trying to regroup, he says, let me ask a question. They all had their shot at it, right? And when you're dealing with these lawyers, you better know what you're doing, right? He said, let me ask you a question. And so this is all in Matthew 22. The Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, son of David. They're no dummies. They knew that, right? Then Jesus said to them, how then doth David, in spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit down at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's quoting the first verse of Psalm 110. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Well, that blew up. They, they murmured. Imagine they gnashed their teeth, whatever. Son of David. He, they knew he was son of David. That's all through 2 Samuel, all through the Psalms, lots of them, Micah 5 2. In fact, in Proverbs, it even shows up. Uh, 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 you know, what is his name? What is his son's name? If thou can tell, speaking of God in Proverbs 30. I won't start on that one here. Okay. No, I love this. I love this. No man was able to answer a word, <laughs> neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. <laughs> so this is a well-known episode in Matthew 22 where he puts, let me show you, though, what the whole thing hangs on. If you look at the first verse of Psalm 110 in Hebrew, you'll discover Yodhe that's the name of you know, the, 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 the Lord, the Lord. And, he, and it uses the term Adonai. In other words, the Lord said unto my Lord, at, at Adonai, the whole key is a Yod. That Yod on Adonai makes it possessive. The Lord said unto my Lord, you see, the writer is indicating possession here. So when you translate it, see, we missed that because we're not doing really translating. The Lord said to my Lord, sit down. Jesus said, okay, if you know that, if, okay, if, if the Messiah is, if Christ is the son of David, how can David say he's my Lord? This whole case that put them to total confusion is a yod. It's a little thing you and I would mistake for a, an apostrophe or something. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Think not that I come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I come not to destroy it, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass one yacht or one tittle, shall no wise pass from the law until all be filled. Now, a yacht or tittle, the yacht is what is a little thing you and I would think is a blemish on the paper. A tittle is a little hook on some of the letters. But uh, anyway, okay, let's move on. The, the next few verses of Psalm 110, Lord shall send a rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning until thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There is that quote that comes up again. Well, where does this Melchizedek first show up in the scripture? If it's just a little footnote, so to speak, on a battle. Genesis 14, the battle of the nine kings. Let's take a look at it. The fourteenth year came Sherdolomer and the kings that were with him and smote the Rephaims and Ashtaroth and Karnim and the Zemzumims and Ham and the Emims in Shavath Kiriathim. Which, by the way, most of these are what? Do you recognize those names? Nephilim. Good for you. Several of the Rephaims, the, the Zemzumims, and the, those are ones that Joshua had the instructions to wipe out every man, woman, and child. But that's later, right? And the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness, and they returned, came to another place I can't pronounce properly, and Mishapat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in uh, Hazazonatamar. Wow. And there went out from the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zaboim, and the king of Bela. These are rebels now. Uh, the same as Zor, they joined the battle with them in the Vale of Siddim. And Chedalamar, the king of Elam, and with the title, the king of nations, and Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elazar, four kings with five. And the Vale of Siddim was full of lime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, and they went their way. In other words, the four rebelled against the the boss, and he took his five of his buddies and they wiped out the four, right? So, okay. But along the way, they made a big mistake. Because down in, when they wiped out Sodom, that gang, they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. From their point of view, that's a small footnote. But it was not a small footnote to his brother. Abraham was probably one of the richest men in the, in the world there at that time. So we have the Shemites, Amraphel, Arioch, Shedalamar, Tidal, and we had the Hamites against them. Four against five. I had it backwards, by the way, because it was five. Five were the rebel rebels, because the Hamites were the rebels against Shedalamar. Very interesting list, by the way, because Shedalamar is the lead guy. He's the top dog. But he's not listed first over there. Amraphel, the king of Shinar, is. Why? He's not important now, but he's going to be important later, because that Shinar is essentially a synonym for Babylon. He'll become more important later, and that's, that's biblical lists are, you got to watch those. So these, these, this whole gang of nine served Sherlomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year, there was a rebellion of the Hamites. But Sherlomer successfully defeated and spoiled the rebels and took Lot, Abram's nephew, captive from Sodom. You with me so far? Okay. And became one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshgal, and the brother of Ener, and these were confederate with Abraham. So he had his buddies too, right? 
And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed, get this, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Now, scholars are torn a little bit as to whether they were all born in this house literally or whether that just means they were trained under him. There's, a, there's, a, there's some linguistic issues behind all that. But the point is, he had his 318 guys that uh, uh, successfully went and rescued Lot. He divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also, think of that, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return. Imagine he was impressed because Abraham pulled off what the king of Sodom couldn't. He brought, Right? And out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Shadalamar and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheve, which is in Kingsdale. Then we have this name show up out of nowhere. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, um, Zedek means righteousness. Melchi is king. Melchizedek is a title. He's the king of righteousness, and he's also the king of Salem. But he's also a priest. This is, now right away, if you're a student of the scripture, you're surprised. Because here is a guy that is a king and a priest both. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Levites and Judah, they, they, you don't have kings and priests combined. There are only three people that are kings and priests. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Jesus Christ will be a king and a priest. Who's the third? Probably sitting right here. Yeah, let's hope so. You betcha. God bless you. Yeah. And Melchizedek blessed him, like a priest would, and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Very unusual title for God, but I won't get into that here. And he blessed, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Abraham give him, gave him tithes. Okay? Abraham gives him tithes. That's going to be a big deal to the writer of Hebrews later. Because that proves that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and Levi is yet born. He's still in the loins of Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek priest is above a Levitical priest. Is the point the writer's going to make. It's a very rabbinical kind of point. But he's going to build on that little phrase. So Abraham's army, 318 trained servants, rescues Lot, okay. He's a Melchizedek king and a priest. He receives Abraham's tithes, and that's going to be emphasized in chapter 6 of, of Hebrews. And he administers bread and wine. Administers bread and wine. That's interesting. Where does that come up again? In Joseph's dream in Egypt. Remember, he's in prison. These other two, the, the wine steward and the baker are there and so forth. And out of that comes eventually, strangely, his redemption out of prison, right? Bread and wine instituted here, uh, echoed in the story of Joseph, which is a type of Christ in many ways, in over a hundred ways actually, and uh, of course is emblem, emblematic to you and I in what? The Lord's Supper, right? Doesn't say bread and grape juice, by the way. It's bread and wine. I just thought I'd mention that. Okay. And there are, of course, allusions to this not only in, he in Psalm 110, but in Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, 
and king of Salem. Salem is an old name for Jerusalem. Some authors, some authorities question that, but I think there's abundance of support that uh, what was then Salem later becomes Jerusalem. And he's also a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek, very interesting guy. He received tithes. It's the only mentions of the ones that we've just looked at, and uh, it's going to be contrast to the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek represents this. The Levitical priesthood, I put it this way, is a separation of both priesthood and kingship. When Reuben forfeits his birthright, his priestly role in the family goes to Levi, and his firstborn son status goes to Judah. So it gets split there, interesting enough. And the two elements by Melchizedek, I think, are fascinating. We could start on and on by that. But okay. Again, let's get back to Hebrews, believe it or not. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard that he feared. And this, of course, is our high priest in view here. His request for deliverance was granted fully in his resurrection with his proclamation of the death defeated. You're looking at Gethsemane and all of that here. Melchizedek order. Even Abraham ties. He blessed Abraham. He was a type of the priest that lives forever. Oh, that writer to Hebrews is going to make the point that Melchizedek in the biblical text has no parents and no death recorded. That doesn't mean he didn't die. There's just no death recorded. There's no birth because he's in there as a type. Okay? It's interesting that all through the scripture there are types of the bride of Christ. There's Ruth, the bride of Boaz, right? There's Eve, the bride of Adam. He's the first Adam, Christ the last Adam. You can go through every one of those in which the wife is a type of the church. There's seven of them. In none of them is their death recorded. Well, do you mean they didn't die? No, of course they died. But in model, they're, mo they're, they're presenting as a type the bride of Christ which, of course, doesn't die. Follow me? So Melchizedek is a type. Many people get confused by that. We'll get to that too. See, Levi, even though he wasn't born yet, paid him tithes because he was in the, he's viewed as being in the loins of Abraham. And, of course, the permanence of Christ's priesthood is implied by the abrogation of the Levitical system. That's what's going to come up here. Melchizedek was a priest without an, without an oath and without an end. Not, excuse me, not without an oath and without an end. Priests can neither be transmitted or interrupted by death and so on. Okay, no record of birth or death by Melchizedek. Was he Shem? You'll find people, well, he was probably Shem. Shem was still alive and all that. No, because we know Shem's genealogy. That would, puncture the, that would puncture the type here. Was Melchizedek an Old Testament appearance of Christ? There are people that suggest that. No, because Christ's priesthood is after the order, after the similitude of Melchizedek. You can't be the type and be it together. It's a contradiction in terms. The Melchizedek, a celestial being of some kind. No, he's a man. That's what Hebrews 7 is going to bring out. So just take it for what it is. He's a type. A mysterious type, but a fascinating type. And it's emphasis, that type is emphasized by the writer of Hebrews. In chapter 7, we're going to really get into this. The king of righteousness and peace, all in Romans as well as Isaiah. His work will be righteousness and shall be peace. Righteousness, peace, and joy in Colossians. Made peace through the blood of Christ, justified by faith. See, Zedek, Melchizedek, is the is the king of righteousness. As contrasted to Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek means the Lord of righteousness, and he was the guy that was king of Jerusalem that created the alliance that Joshua has to put down. 
Joshua's adversary in the book of Joshua ultimately is Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, is he, which is antithetical, of course. He's an antitype. He's a, in fact, he's a type, if you went to, of, of the Antichrist. And it's very, very interesting that, that Joshua is facing seven, seven heads, huh? There were ten altogether because three were put down by Moses before Joshua took over. So there's ten but seven, and you can go through all that later. Okay. Five contra. Jesus has a better position. He's a better priest. He's a better priesthood because he's a better covenant. The priesthood is a better sanctuary and based on a better sacrament. The word better, 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 better is all through the book of Hebrews. So that is the background fabric of the writer, but that's not his main point. His main points are the warnings. He continues here, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he severed. Learned obedience? That throws a lot of people. He learned from the things that he suffered. It's a play on words in the Greek, from a Greek proverb that he learned by obedience, that he, the, he, he, he obtained obedience. It doesn't mean that he learned. I'm not prying. Many people jump to all kinds of, of improper Christology from that. Christ didn't learn by obedience in the way we would think of that, in the English what that means. We wouldn't go that way. And being made perfect, he became the, the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Does that say eternal salvation? Well, if it's eternal, you can't lose it, can you? Let's not confuse ourselves, right? Okay. Called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Eternal salvation. Remember, Jesus said, to tell us die. It is finished. Can be translated, paid in full. John 19. Now, the obedience that's addressed here is not the obedience of works, because salvation is never by works. It's the obedience is the obedience of faith. And that's what he's talking about here uh, as we go through. And we'll get that. Now, what, all this is a build-up to a rebuke. The author develops the topic of the priesthood, but now he interrupts himself because he's going to say, you guys aren't ready for what I'm about to teach you. What I'm about to teach you is too advanced for you. Listen to this. He's going to give a preamble before he gets to warning number three. His warning is about stagnation. Your, I'm going to pretend you are the listeners of the Epistle of Hebrews. Your failure to progress to spiritual maturity. That's what he's going to deal with here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.